Every year we have what's called Vision Next. It usually happens toward the end of February, the beginning of March. And Vision Next is a, is a day that we take and remember everything that God has done in the last year. We celebrate our volunteers and we anticipate and hear about what we feel like God is asking us to do next as a church. And um, a lot of times it involves a big project we enter into together. Last year, that project, that uh, that initiative, that thing we were doing together was to invest in our student ministry and to fund the hiring of a full-time youth pastor, which has since uh, joined our staff in November. And Brendan preached last week. If you missed that, check it out online. Did a great job. It was super intentional message and um, really good. <laughs> and uh, If you didn't hear it, he said intentionality like, I don't know, 30 times, about once a minute, I think. Um, but um, we are, are thankful for that. And if in the meantime, we have decided and feel like the best thing right now is to delay Vision Next until May. We, we have some things that we think God is doing in this place, but with Rethink Small and some transitions and things happening, we're just holding off a little bit. But if you want to continue, we'd love if you had made kind of monthly pledge just to continue to do that toward um, toward student ministry and, and next generation ministry. Those funds will continue to go into the Vision Next Fund for that as we move toward early May for Vision Next. I just wanted to let you know what was going on with that. Now, as a part of moving in that direction, we have, as, as leaders, sensed God asking something of us as a church. We believe that he is asking us to lean into the work of making disciples. Lean into the work of of allowing God to work in us to form us as his followers and in us to form others as followers. And so we're we're putting together a team that will be evaluating our disciple making strategy and looking at life groups and infuse and all of the different things that we do, what's missing, what needs to happen, what's working, what could be better. And we'll be developing some some strategies to help create the environments for us as followers of Jesus to follow more closely and more intentionally. But in the meantime, as I was Thinking about this call to discipleship, this call to disciple making, this call to follow Jesus, I came to Lent with this awareness that there is one thing that maybe gets in the way of our spiritual lives more than anything else. It's what I often hear when I ask someone how they're doing. Usually it's, I'm good, busy, but good. Or I'd love to help with that. When is it? Oh, I'm, I'm busy that day. I've just got a lot going on. Maybe more than anything else, it is our hurry and busyness that keeps us from knowing God. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaks these words. Feel free to use your phone or device or there are Bibles in the, in the chair there. If you open to the middle, start working your way back, you'll find this section with Matthew at the top. And, in, and beginning in this 
chapter 11. There's a big 11, and then look for a little 28. <laughs> In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, we find Jesus speaking these words. Come to me. Come follow me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and the burden I give you is light. If you've been around the church, if you've been around the the gospel, if you've been in the gospel, you've probably come across this. Maybe it's familiar It was very familiar to me. I could just about quote it without reading and yet at the same time, the life that it described was so unfamiliar to me. I'll give you rest, ease, light burdens. And I thought, I must be missing something. Because my Christianity has not done that for me. I feel more rushed, more hurried, more burdensome, more guilt, more shame, more fear too often. And yet Jesus says that when we come to him, he takes the heaviness of those burdens and he gives us rest. Jesus Jesus was a lot of things, is a lot of things. Messiah, Son of God, Savior. But in in first century Judea, he was known as rabbi or a teacher. A traveling teacher or sage, they would would call him rabbi. Now a rabbi had two things. The first thing they had, every rabbi had, was a yoke. Not a big yoke wooden yoke that you place on two oxen to keep them moving in the same direction and to multiply their efforts to structure their work. But a yoke is in a set of teaching and a way of life that structured that way of life. And so every rabbi's teachings and the way they lived their life was known as a yoke. Like a harness, the big wooden harness that was used to hook the oxen together. And so they had this yoke that was their teaching. Now, if you've been around religion much, then you know that often the yoke of a rabbi or a teacher would be heavy. Filled with expectations and burdens and rules and do's and don'ts and when you need to do what, where, and who you could do it with. And, and all of these expectations and they would use guilt to manipulate more and more of this behavior. It's filled with shame and expectations and pain. And Jesus says, I have a yoke. That's another way of navigating the chaotic life you live. It's light and full of rest. (laughs) The second thing that a rabbi would have is Talmudim or 
we usually translate the word as disciples, but a, a better translation would be apprentices. People who were learning to do what Jesus did. Learning to live as Jesus lived. Learning to teach what Jesus taught. Learning to think as Jesus thought. They would follow him everywhere. Talmudim, apprentices, were known to follow their rabbi into the bathroom. We see this willingness to follow in Peter as he steps out of the boat walking on water because that's what his rabbi was doing. He was just following his rabbi. And so they would go where the rabbi went. They would learn to to live as the rabbi lived. And in Jesus' case, as they learned the, the way and the truth of Jesus Their souls were recovered. And the warped places within them were reshaped and healed. Jesus invites us into this unforced rhythm of grace. But I wonder if, like me, some of you feel like maybe you're missing something if that's what Jesus following is supposed to be like. And I think our mistake and my mistake has been focusing on the truth of Jesus without the way of Jesus. Here's what I mean. We try to be kind. We try to be patient with those around us. We try to be loving and generous and helpful. We try to to live by uh, this rule of love, if nothing else, and yet... Every other area of our life looks just like the world around us. Our way of life looks just like the world around us. So what we're trying to do is to live the truth and life of Jesus without the way of Jesus. And it's only when we wed the way of Jesus that with the truth of Jesus that we find the life of Jesus. Otherwise, something's just off. John Mark Comer, and you'll hear me refer to him often in this series, wrote the the ruthless elimination of hurry. If you want to dig deeper into these teachings over the next few weeks, it's worth every penny. In fact, there are some books that I listen to I listen to audible and audiobooks a lot um, so that I can learn as I'm on the go and there are books that I listen to and then decide to buy and this every single John Mark Comer book that I've listened to I've bought um, it, it began with the Garden City and then Loveology and the ruthless elimination of hurry um, in that he writes this when it comes to your Christian life if If the results you're getting are lousy, (laughs) anxiety at a simmer, mild depression, high levels of stress, chronic emotional burnout, little to no sense of the presence of God, an inability to focus your mind on the things that make life matter, then the odds are very good that something about the system that is your life is off kilter. The way you've organized your morning or evening or daily routine, your schedule, your budget, 
your relationship to your phone, how you manage your resources of time, money, and attention, something is out of whack if your results are lousy. And I think it's this, that we have missed out on the way of life demonstrated by Jesus. When you, when you begin to look closely at the, the way of life that Jesus lived, you, you read through the Gospels. You could read them word for word a hundred times and something you will never find is Jesus in a hurry. Jesus was never rushed. Never. And I look at my life, and I'm cramming so much into it that I find myself often in a hurry. Now, for the the sake of us being able to to understand this unhurried soul and how to develop and grow us, we need to share a definition of hurry. And, And I think it's just as simple as this. Excessive haste or a state of urgency. Dallas Willard puts it this way. It's a state of frantic effort that we fall into in response to our inadequacy, fear, and guilt. Read that again. And maybe let it just be a self-test. A state of frantic effort. One falls into in response to inadequacy, fear, or guilt. I'm not enough. I need to try harder and do more to prove to myself or someone else that I'm enough. I've got to do enough to be enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough energy. There's not enough people to do this. I have to do this. Or I love this. I'm afraid that if I don't do it, no one will. Fear driving our hurry. Guilt. Feel bad for not being enough. For not doing enough. For not showing up enough. We feel guilty for not doing what we think that God would expect, even though God's never said that he expects it. But, but we've heard somewhere, and we, we should be this way, and our shoulds are killing us. And, and, and this guilt over what we should be or should do is driving us from one thing to the next. And we're trying to cram so much into this moment that we're late for the next, and we're in so much of a hurry. There's really nothing in life. Maybe other than rescuing a child in the street that you do in a hurry that can't be done better when done slowly. There is nothing that you do in a hurry that you wouldn't do better slowly. But we see slow as bad. If you were to look up Merriam-Webster's definition of slow, it's language like sluggish, dumb, Unable to keep up. For us, we think fast is good, slow is bad. Gandhi said there's more to life than speeding it up. (laughs) Hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. 
Hurry and over-busyness is not Christian. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-Christ. Jesus never rushed. He was never in a hurry. His way was slow and deliberate. It simmered and grew. Think about it. It says in Scripture that God is love. Love is annoyingly slow. It takes lots of time to show and be love. (laughs) You can't love quickly. You don't fall in love with someone in five minutes between other things that you're busy doing. It doesn't grow unless you spend lots of time together. Friendship doesn't grow unless there is lots of of time. Love is slow. Joy. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. <laughs> joy, joy. The more joy you feel, let's take a step back. The more present you are in a moment, the more joy you tap into. Joy is an awareness of the goodness of this moment without feeling rushed into the next or loss of the past. It's being right here, right now, and being aware of how good that is. And when we're in a hurry, we lose out on joy. Peace. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Anything that Christianity is about, it's meant to be about love, joy, and peace, right? I I probably don't even need to explain this, but have you ever felt that deep-seated sense of calm when you were in a hurry? Do you speak peacefully to your spouse or kids when you are in a hurry, when you are rushed? Do you speak kindly to the other drivers in the road when you are in a hurry? Do you feel at peace when you're late? So if, if our faith, if Christianity, is about love and joy and peace, how could we ever experience God with a hurried soul? It is anti To be an apprentice of Jesus is to walk at Jesus' pace. Slowly. Walter Adams, the um, spiritual director of C.S. Lewis, puts it this way. To walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer. While also spoiling and impeding all good work. It never advances the kingdom. So, so maybe a little test to see if you and I live hurried. I don't know if it's even possible in our world and culture today to live unhurried. Without being pretty deliberate. But let's think about the last time you were in the store. 
grocery store, Walmart, wherever. Did you look for the shortest line or rush to the self-checkout? Did you maybe walk the entire length of registers to find the shortest line and then go back to it? Did you even look the cashier in the face at any point in that conversation? When you're approaching a stoplight, do you count the cars and look for the trucks and move into the shortest lane that will move you more quickly where you want to go? Have you multitasked recently to the point that you forgot at least one of the tasks that you were doing? Walked into a room and, why am I here? I mean, as followers of Jesus in 2020, we're more busy than we are bad. We're more busy than we are bad. And it goes way back. And in 200 BC, the philosopher Plautus, he, he said this, Who is it that placed and set up a sundial To cut and hack my day so wretchedly into these small portions. Rushed by the movement of the sundial. In the 6th century, St. Benedict charged his monks to pray seven times a day. Which is a wonderful thing. Six centuries later, those same monks invented the mechanical clock to tell them when to pray. And thereby rush all the moments in between. In 1879, Thomas Edison patented the light bulb. Up until this point, you slept when it was dark and you worked when it was light. Period. In fact, up until this point, people averaged 11 hours of sleep a night. 11 hours of sleep a night. And that's with everybody sleeping in the same room. You know, I used to feel guilty when I'd read about John Wesley and other leaders who got up at 4 a.m. to pray. But the truth is they'd already had nine hours of sleep. If I went to bed at 7 p.m., I could get up at 4 too. hundred years ago, technology took a leap, a jump, and moved intentionally into this To the creation of time-saving technologies. We thought that by now we'd be working 22 hours a week. And we would have trouble figuring out what to do with all our leisure time. Is that your biggest problem? I doubt it. We have cars that keep us from having to walk from place to place. Toasters that speed up our breakfast. Microwaves. Takeout. Because it takes too long to make toast in your toaster. Coffee makers and laundry machines and the ever-listening AI, Siri and Alexa, always ready to help. In 2007, our speed went to a furious pace. The world changed in 2007 as much as it did with the creation of Gutenberg's printing press centuries before. In 2007, several things happened that maybe for some of us went unnoticed, but will be and is already being written about in history books. 
In 2007, Facebook went public for anybody who had an email address. Twitter was launched. The cloud was something more than you look at in the sky. App stores were released, and Steve Jobs sold the first iPhone. Nothing has ever been the same. Our lives have gotten busier and busier and busier as we fill day and night with more and more activity. We try to say yes to everything that comes across our path without realizing that we're saying no to the things that matter most. All of these wonderful time savers have busied our lives and distracted us to oblivion. We'd barely recognize what life was like before the iPhone or that those other phones. <laughs> I mean, really, we're more distracted than we are unspiritual. The average iPhone user, and like I said, I'm sure it applies to the other kinds of phones too, is the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times. That's the average. That means in a day. 2,617 times a day. That means some of us are touching them 5,000 times. 76 sessions, 2.5 hours each day. In first service every week, the phones ding and tell people how long they spent on them. I gotta get your attention one more time. The average user will spend 705 hours this year on social media. It's not even counting the internet. 705 hours. We'll spend 2,737 and a half hours on TV this year. Let me put it into perspective. Half of homes in America don't have a dad. Those that do, dad spends on average 30 minutes a week in conversation with the child. And 35 hours watching TV, 21 hours on the phone. Or, I'm sorry, two and a half hours on the phone. Their kids spend 30 minutes in conversation with dad and 44 hours a week looking at a screen. The average reader, the average speed, not a fast reader, can read about 200 books In 417 hours. And that seems like a lot, right? 417 hours. Except for the fact that we spend twice that looking at social media. And nearly 10 times that watching TV. If you were to take the hour of TV before bed and start reading your Bible for just that hour, you would finish the entire Bible in six months. We are... Distracted. In fact, in 2000, so not that long ago, our attention span as a species was 12 seconds. Not impressive. Since the invention of the iPhone, it's dropped to 8 seconds. A goldfish's attention span is 9. We have a problem. We can't even pay attention as long as a goldfish. Some of you are being, you're, you're going crazy with the amount of pauses in this message. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you haven't heard any of it. You lost after eight seconds. 
I get eight more every now and again. (laughs) Addiction is defined this way. The relentless pull to a substance or activity that becomes so compulsive, it ultimately interferes with everyday life. Listen to that again. The relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive, it ultimately interferes with everyday life. By that definition, I don't know many, if anyone, who owns a device with a screen and is not addicted. Has your phone interrupted a conversation, an ability to pay attention, a time of prayer? See, the devil's not going to show up with a pitchfork and horns. He's going to show up like a ding on that phone when you're trying to pray. It's going to show up as a reminder when you're trying to read scripture. It's going to show up as, oh, I need to order that. Need to add to my grocery list. I need to do this, that, or the other. And we pick up our phone, and 30 minutes later, like, what in the world just happened? The saddest part of it all is that we never stop to ask what we're acquiring in this trade of our souls, because that's what we're losing. The hurry is killing us. I mean, we, we start a business and gain success or promotion, but lost a marriage or kids in the process. We may have made lots of money, but we're poor in the things that matter. We watched all 14 seasons of our favorite show, but never learned how to pray. We're up to date on the lives of all of our Facebook friends. But don't have an actual friend that we could call and share a meal with. We're just too busy and distracted to know Jesus. I mean, I hear from people a lot. I just don't feel like Jesus is close. I just don't feel God's presence. I don't hear him. I don't, I don't see him. And, and I get there are exceptions. I've been through dark night of the soul. I been in those times, but generally speaking, it's not God who is absent from the relationship. I'm just too busy and distracted to pay attention to him. I try to give him two minutes in the morning or or a few minutes in the car ride, and, and I wonder why I don't see him or hear him. Netflix becomes more important than the word. I mean, you do realize that you are the product there, right? Not the, the TV show. You do, you do realize that the owner of Netflix has said that his biggest competitor is your sleep. They intentionally try to get you addicted. Social media, exact same. They have people, psychologists on their team designing their platforms to keep you stuck on them. You are the product. That's why that phone was so cheap. They bought you. You didn't buy a phone. 
Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Be still. We struggled for two minutes earlier to be still and quiet. Be still and know that I am God. What do we do? Our world moves so fast. What do we do? How can we find the rest that Jesus offers in a world going at a breakneck speed? That's what this series is about. An invitation to rediscover the way of Jesus along with the truth of Jesus. But listen, the first thing you have to do is reject shame and guilt. We're, we're all guilty of hurry, of rush, of too busy and distracted. Guilt and shame isn't helpful, and it's rarely from God. We need hope and possibility and truth. We need to see a different way. We don't need guilt. What are the truth that we need to do? First, we need to recognize that hurry is a sociopathic predator in your life. It kills everything it touches. Hurry is the devil. It is here to steal and kill and destroy your life. It will kill your relationships. Your hurry will kill your relationships. If you rush by each other in your marriage or your friendship or your connections, it will kill the relationship. Love requires time. It will kill your joy because it takes you out of every moment rushing to the next. And the only way that we know joy, the only way that we know peace is in presence. It kills our gratitude. We can't be thankful for what we have because we need more to make us happy. Like the, the whole idea of contentment is to be able to enjoy what we have. We can't even enjoy what we have because we're buying another one. Something better, something different, something else. It kills wisdom because wisdom is always acquired slowly and painfully. Hurry will kill your health. Cardiologists have, have identified what they're calling hurry sickness. And they find it as the common thread between heart attack patients. This overwhelming sense of too much to do and not enough time to do it in. And listen, the solution to this feeling is not more time. Think, if only I had more time. God, if I just had a few more hours in the day, I could do it all. No, you couldn't. Because think about it, just stop for a second. Imagine if you had three more hours in your day. It would take you about 15 seconds to think of six hours worth of stuff to do in those three hours. And you'd just be right back where you are or worse. Kills our health. Physically, the stress, the rush, the, the hurry destroys our bodies. We eat less healthfully. <laughs> We eliminate the time required to exercise. It destroys our brains and our minds, our hearts. 
kills marriage, kills family, kills friendship, kills creativity. So I think, well, I'm more creative in the pressure. No, you're not. You just finally stopped to think about what you were doing. You would find that you would be ten times more creative if you made the space for it. It kills generosity because when I'm in a hurry, I'm afraid I don't have enough. And I can't take the time to see what I have and become generous. It ultimately will kill our souls. It will kill us. And here's the the painful reminder. Our hurry, most of it, self-inflicted. It's self-inflicted. It is the result of our choices. We, we, we choose it. We like it. It makes us feel important to be busy. Like none of us want to be the people who take a nap every day. Until you've had kids and then you're like, yeah, I wish I had a nap every day. That's just because we have too much to do. We're too tired and we stayed up too late doing it. Our hurry and our overload is self-inflicted. We've created the addiction to our phones, our TVs, our devices, our work. We're looking for value in all of those places. You know the beauty like of that truth is like I get to decide. I get to decide how hurried I am. Every yes is also a no. Really, it's probably about a thousand no's. And every no is a thousand yeses. I had this conversation with Noah this week. We have a lot of these conversations. I um, make the time to take them to school and we talk during that time. And we have to talk about anything and everything. And that's when questions seem to arise. And this week, um, on Friday, we were having a conversation triggered from the conversation on Thursday night. So on Thursday night, he got a text or call or something that just said, hey, do you want to help deliver cookies to the teachers at your school tomorrow morning? So we can pick you up uh, at 7.15. You can come and help deliver the cookies to the middle school. And then if you hurry, you'll be to class on time. And I could see this look on his face. He was conflicted. And I just said, Noah, you can say no. You can say no. He said, I can it's like, yeah. You see, if you say yes, you're going to have to leave earlier. You're going to have to be ready earlier. You have to go faster in the morning. And you're going to have to hurry to make sure you're at class at the time. He said, I can say no. I said, yeah. He said no. And that next morning, I was driving him to school at 7.30, 7.40 instead of 7.15. He said, Dad, it's so great to know I could say no. Like, I can, I can say no to a good thing, to something I feel compelled or, or expected to do. I can say no. And we talked about it. I said, do you realize what you said yes to? He said, I don't know. I said, one, you said yes to this conversation that wouldn't have happened. You said yes to your commitment. You see, for Lent, he committed to getting up 30 minutes earlier to have extra time with God. And he didn't even tell me he was doing it. I just saw him awake earlier. So at 6 o'clock, his alarm goes off. And he has some time that he's reading and journaling. And he would have had to cut that short. 
And then he wouldn't have had the time to make the good breakfast of eggs that he made. And he wouldn't have had time to go a little slower and spend time with the dogs and do the things that he does in the morning. He got to do all of those slow things because he said no. You get to decide. You get to decide. You get to say yes or you get to say no. It's your decision. Do you know this is the last thing that we need to realize? My life can change. It can be different. My life can change if I'm willing to change it. It won't happen accidentally. It won't happen by wishful thinking. It won't happen until you start saying no. So over the course of the series, this next couple of weeks, we're going to answer and look for what's been missing in our Christianity, in our lives. You see, before sociologists and philosophers and psychologists and cardiologists tried to point the way to slowing down a bit, there was Jesus living an unhurried life with an unhurried soul. I mean, think about it. There are people who tried to rush him all the time. People who are always after his attention. Thousands would show up for him to teach impromptu. And it often says he snuck away in the morning. The disciples would wake up and like, where's Jesus? And he'd show up a couple hours later. There were times that his best friend, one of his best friends is dying. And he like took three days to get there. Took the long way. Like, what are you doing? I'll get there at the right time. They tried to push him into the Messiah type work. He's like, it's not my time yet. Whereas most of us are like, yeah, I'm in. Let's go. But before that, we were, he recognized how we're created. Genesis chapter 1 says you were created in the image of God, but out of dust. You were created with great potential and limitations. On Ash Wednesday, we gathered in this place and we received ashes and heard the words, from dust you have come and to dust you shall return. But the truth is, nobody wants to hear that message, right? It'd be a terrible sermon, accepting your limits. Making peace with your mortality and cosmic insignificance. Come back next week. But man, wouldn't it be a freeing message? We, like, we are taught and pushed like the potential side and, and just push past your limitations. Go further. Go harder. You'll get used to it. It'll be okay. It's just for a season. It's not. I can't do it all, and neither can you. I can't do it all. There's something very freeing to saying that, so let's do it together on three. One, two, three. I can't do it all. Okay, some of you didn't say it. You need to say it. Let's try again. I can't do it all. Maybe the rest of you will say it by the end of the series. You have limitations. I have limitations. My body. I, I can't be everywhere at once. I can only be at one place. 
It only has certain strengths. My mind, my gifting, my emotional health, my family of origin, my socioeconomic origins, my education, seasons of life, responsibilities, they all create limitations. And if we ignore them, we will run ourselves off a cliff. Rethink Small, the conference we did not long ago, has done something strange in my life. It's eliminated a great deal of anonymity, um, and it has created opportunities for speaking. So last week, we met with the elders to um, set up how long and how often and how frequently and when I'm allowed to, to go outside of Hydrant to speak, because Hydrant is my priority, my first responsibility. As far as ministry goes. Like last weekend I was away at Newburn Teaching what we do in leadership. Spent six hours on Saturday. Teaching leadership a lot the way I'll do next Saturday. Here. And, um, and then preach the, the Hydrant's hospital story. To remind them as they're going into a new building. Of what our mission really is as the church. And, and it was a part of the replication of who we are. Something we are called to. We've shared in that. And. But there's only so much I can do that. But even more than that, I have a responsibility to Anita and Noah and Sophia that creates limits on Rethink Small and the speaking schedules and any of these other things. Those have to set limits or I will hurry to the point of losing them. What matters most sets the greatest limits. So it's this, this week is it's an invitation to join me in rediscovering the truth of Jesus, but also the way of Jesus. How he lived his life should show us how to live ours as apprentices, disciples, followers of him. It's not commandments in scripture that we're going to be looking at. It's invitations. In fact, it's Jesus lived this way. We can find habits or disciplines, if you want, practices, things Jesus did that if we were to do them might lead us to being able to hear, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. My way is one that produces rest. Wouldn't that be a Christianity worth living? And so it's not commanded, but invitations. And and so we're going to enter into these invitations that we see in Jesus' life of silence and solitude and simplicity and Sabbath and slowness. They're not fun. They feel counterproductive. And it's hard. I have been preaching these messages to myself over the last several weeks. God began to do this in me even before that, and I'm trying to answer, but it's hard. Truth hurts before it helps. So it's kind of like this time I was playing basketball, and I got undercut when I went up for a layup and knocked into a door that was behind the the basket and um, hit my head and had this big gash, still a little scar. And when I went to the doctor, they took a big needle and shoved it into the open wound so that they could they could numb the area. It didn't work. But they and they didn't do it just once, like multiple times. That's what this has been like. God taking a needle and shoving it in the wound 
And he says, this is for your good. It will help. But it hurts first. So the, the first thing I did was sell my Apple Watch. It would ding and remind me of things. I used it for that on purpose for a while. And, and it would text and all this kind of stuff. And some people were like, well, why don't you just turn off the notifications? And no, I needed to get rid of it. it I, got, I got a message while I was preaching. Like, that's a problem. <laughs> and then, then I got my, my, my iPhone. And I took my email off of it. And I, and I took Facebook and Instagram off of it. And I took the games off of it. And then I took the shopping apps off of it. It's useless now. <laughs> like it'll make calls and send messages when I need to. And that's it. It's like a dumb phone that has maps when I get lost. But like I pull it out in line at the grocery store. Like, well, what am I doing this for? There's nothing to do on there. I ended up looking up houses in, on Zillow. I don't want to move. Like, but I'm bored. Like, and God's like, good. Boredom's good. Recover that. And, he, and, and I took off the, the shopping apps. And, and I've entered into Lent. I can be compulsive. Not impulsive. Not compulsive. Impulsive. Maybe compulsive. Um. Uh, so I'm not buying anything during those 40 days. Um, I didn't buy things I didn't have money for, but I bought things. Like, here's where I realized that this is what I needed to do. Please don't judge me too badly. I have, I have three pair of Bluetooth headphones. One for in the gym, because it's going to get sweaty. One that cover my ears completely so that I can't hear you. And another one that's small for travel and things like that. And I thought, you idiot, what do you need all that for? I don't. Cleaned out closets and different things I'm working on. I won't be buying anything that's not necessary. No, Not even like... Oh, I have a lunch in the refrigerator. I just don't want it. I'm going to go get something to eat over wherever. Not going to do that for the next 40 days and hopefully longer. It's just what I'm doing. And maybe that's some ideas for you. Maybe like put your phone in another room off while you're trying to connect with God. Or with the people around you? Like you go out to dinner, like leave it in the car? You'll be okay. Like on purpose, not accidentally and have to go back and get it. Like on purpose. Leave it at home. Like if there's two of you, you got kids, but you're like, oh, they got to be able to get a hold of us. They They only need one of your numbers. Leave the other one at home. I don't know, maybe, maybe unplug the TV so that if you want to watch it, you have to actually plug it in. And they, they have to go through that extra effort. I don't know what it is for you. But I think that if we are going to be the disciples, the followers, the apprentices that Jesus offers for us to become, we might need to slow down.
I don't think you can have an unhurried soul in the kingdom of God. I mean, I don't think you can have a hurried soul in the kingdom of God. I think it requires an unhurried soul to experience God. So we're going to do something throughout the season of Lent. And before that, the way this is going to go is I'm going to pray. And you'll be dismissed. But we're going to try something for a little while. And, and we've set up over here an area for communion. It'll be here every Sunday from now on for a while. And if you would like to, maybe as a covenant with God to slow down, to unhurry. Maybe as a request for his help. Or just a response to the word and worship you want to receive then you're invited after we're dismissed to just come over, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and eat it and be reminded that he is, his body was broken, his blood was spilled in love for you before you did anything. The, he suffered slowly in love for you. That he lives now patiently in love for you. His love is patient. You don't have to. If there are a few that would, after the room is emptied out, help us to stack the chairs along the wall, we'd be grateful. We're just going to take a moment to slow down. I'm going to pray, and then you'll be dismissed to go enjoy a homemade cookie or or communion and then a homemade cookie. If you're like me, this hurt. But I think he loves us enough to hurt us once in a while. So that we could see a better way. And I promise this, this is the longest of the messages in this series. But we're going to slow down. For those who would want to draw close. I know it's hard. Being still. Being quiet. Being patient. It's hard. But it's better. Let's pray. Father, I confess my struggle with hurry. Being busy does sometimes make me feel important or needed. And I, and I find it there instead of in you. And I believe that you're inviting us to slow down a bit. To be still so that we could know you more. I don't know that there's really any other way for us to be made into the disciples you called us to become. So... We come to you and ask for your help. We need courage to slow down, to stop, to breathe. We need you. We can't do it on our own. Remind us. Give us the strength to, to take active steps to align our way of life with your way of life. Challenge us in the weeks to come. 
Help us to remain open to it, deliberate, to add both your way and truth to our lives in such a way that we discover the life you would give us. We ask this in Jesus' name, according to your faithfulness and goodness, not our own works. Amen.